if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them with me to Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 30. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 30. As many of you, I'm sure, are experiencing, uh, I've got a little bit of a throat itch. So please bear with me as, uh, as I preach. I might need to take a, a strangely large amount of tiny sips of water. <coughs> Mike, can you turn my mic up a little bit more, brother? Thank you. Several thousands of years ago, God began to form a people for himself. At that time, there was a man who lived in darkness. He was worshiping pagan moon gods, and he was living for himself. And then God said to that man, I will be your God. And then he said that to that man, I will make you into a great nation, and I will be their God. And God was true to his promise. And he took that man, Abram, who was soon to be called Abraham, and he did make him into a great nation. That nation was Israel. But before you can even blink as you read the Bible, you see that the nation of Israel has been taken captive as slaves. And they were captured for centuries on end. But God, ever faithful to his word and to the cries of his people, sent a man named Moses to rescue his people from the bondages of slavery. He led them through many mighty deeds and wonders out of the land of Egypt and into the promised land. And Moses was acting as a shepherd of sorts. He was keeping all the sheep together in the flock as they moved towards their destination. And it was a large flock, and the shepherd's work was difficult and oftentimes nearly impossible, for the flock that he was leading was hard-hearted and stiff-necked. Finally, after decades of leading the sheep, the flock arrived at the Promised Land. Sadly, the shepherd Moses could not enter into the Promised Land with the people. But still, being the good shepherd that he was, he asked God one final request. He asked that God would give them another shepherd. That they would not be as a people in the land without anyone to accompany them, without anyone to lead them. He didn't want to leave the sheep to fend for themselves in the land of the wolves. And so Numbers 27, 15 through 17 reads, Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in after them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. And because the Lord loved Moses, and because the Lord loved his sheep, he responded like this. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. So God gave them another shepherd, Joshua. Sadly, after Joshua, the faithful shepherds of Israel were few and far between. You see, 
the priests and the judges and the kings of the nation, they were all supposed to be acting as shepherds for God's people. But the priests weren't doing their jobs. The priests were using their positions of authority to earn things for themselves that were not theirs. The kings were all around terrible. For every one good king in Israel, there were four atrocious ones. In the book of Ezekiel, the Lord laments the lack of a true shepherd in Israel. Speaking of the priests, he says this, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds. It's a terrible thing for God to be against you. By the time that Jesus arrives on the scene and begins his ministry, the shepherds had all but disappeared in the land. There were rabbis and Pharisees, but they were in no meaningful way shepherds. They were just like the priests that God was rebuking through Ezekiel many years before. There were secular kings and rulers that ruled over the Israelites, but they were foreigners and they were in no way shepherds of the sheep. And so as we open our Bibles to Mark chapter 6, we read in verse 34 that Jesus saw the crowd, and he saw them as sheep with no shepherd. And today's account shows us what it looks like for Jesus, the true shepherd, to lead his people. Today's account of Jesus as the good shepherd shows us what shepherding looks like on a micro level, and on a macro level. So let's read it together and then dive in and see what that means. Mark 6, verse 30 through 56. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the grass, on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish amongst them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat, and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, 
for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring him sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And whenever he came in villages, cities, or countrysides, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Well, this is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. So, you should know, brothers and sisters, that the good shepherd is still shepherding his sheep today, even you and me. Therefore, I'd like to ask us one question this morning, which we'll spend the rest of our time together trying to answer. And the question is this, how does the shepherd care for his sheep? How does the shepherd care for his sheep? I think there's several answers to this, but there's one overarching answer, or overarching answer, and then underneath that we'll see some kind of drop-down menus. The Lord loves his people. He shepherds his people in love. And I think we see an abundance of that this morning in our text. There's a man here in town that is called the Temple of Doom by the elders that he serves with on an elder board. You see, his last name is Temple, but the Doom part is a play on words. It's a joke at his expense because it seems like any time the elders talk about anything, he has to be the one to say something negative. Well, it's perceived to be negative by many, the things that he says, but most of what Mr. Temple says is actually realistic. It's actually prudence and wise. And realism and wisdom and prudence can be a real downer. When I first met Mr. Temple, my impression of him was that he was the Temple of Doom. He seemed cold and distant, somewhat callous. As I got to know him better, however, I came to see that he was, in fact, a man of great compassion. He was kind and warm and affectionate, and he had a sweet spirit. If someone were to read the accounts from Mark 6 today, in isolation from the rest of the Gospel of Mark, they might think that the disciples are the truly loving ones and that Jesus is somewhat hard and calloused like Mr. Temple. They may at first glance look at Jesus the way that I at first glance looked at Mr. Temple. As the disciples noticed the people's need for food, They request that Jesus send the people to go get some food. Verse 35 and 36 read, And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place and the hour is late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Isn't it kind of the disciples to consider the, the hunger and the physical needs of the people that Jesus is preaching and teaching to? That was very nice of you. Disciples, thank you. And then we see Jesus' response. It seems cold. 
seems hard, it seems callous. He says, you feed them. In the next account, the story of Jesus walking on the water, Jesus once again appears to be slow in compassion. Now maybe you didn't notice that as much on your first read, so let me trot that out a little bit for you. You see, Jesus sent the disciples to the other side of the Sea of Galilee so that he could dismiss the crowds and go pray. But then evening came, and the winds grew heavy on the sea, and the disciples were incapable of making any headway. The first half of verse 48 reads this, And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Now, if you've never rode a sailboat from first century Galilee, which I assume is everyone in this room, these verses may not mean anything to you. It may not impact you the same way it would a person from the first century. But if you've ever rode against the wind, these verses would hit you like a ton of bricks. If you've ever pushed and strained right up to the red line of exhaustion, fighting against the winds to maintain course, trying to move ahead at a snail's pace, well then you would understand these verses and hear them a little differently. And here's the part that would make you question the compassion of Jesus. The text says in verse 48 that Jesus went out to them about the fourth watch of the night. Well, again, unless you were a fisherman from first century Galilee, that part would, if, if you were a fisherman, that would have been a very dramatic part when I just read it like that. But since you're not, you probably don't know what it means. Here's what it means. The fourth watch of the night was between 3 and 6 a.m. So stay with me while I break this down. As Jesus is teaching the people earlier in the day, roughly 5,000 people, the disciples notice that the hour is getting late. They don't mean it's like 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock. It's like 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It's time for people to be thinking about dinner, okay? So they ask Jesus to send the people into the surrounding town so that they can buy food. And the people have to take the time to walk from the desolate place into the city. Well, that could take a couple of hours. And they need to make sure that they get there before the shops are closed. So Jesus sends them away pretty early in the morning or, excuse me, pretty early in the day. Now, say with me, after Jesus feeds the 5,000, so this is after the disciples notice that the day is getting late. They say, are you going to send these people away? Jesus feeds the 5,000. That takes a considerable amount of time. After that, he sends the disciples out into the boat across the Sea of Galilee. But then, Jesus goes up in verse 46, and verse 47 says, that he went up and he prayed after he dismissed the crowd. But in verse 47 it says this, And when evening came, he went up to pray. And then very casually after that, it says that Jesus went out to them at the fourth watch of the night. So Jesus notices the disciples struggling to make headway on the Sea of Galilee, fighting against the wind, somewhere between 6 and 9 p.m. And he lets them struggle until the fourth watch of the night, somewhere around 3 or 6 a.m. Why are you so slow to help them, Jesus? You could have walked out there any moment and helped them. Instead, if you noticed it at 3 p.m. or 6 p.m. or 9 p.m. and let them struggle and fight the wind and strain in their own power and might until 3 or 6 a.m., 
Why were you so slow to help them, Jesus? Where's the love? If Jesus is so loving, how could he let people potentially go without food? If Jesus is so loving, how could he let the disciples struggle in the boat the way that, we did, the way that they did? Go back to verse 34 with me. Verse 34 reads, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like a sheep without shepherd, without a shepherd. So the question for us, if we take the Bible to be true, isn't, is Jesus compassionate? The question is, how can we see the love of Jesus? How can we see the compassion of Jesus in these stories because it says that he clearly does have compassion on them but like a child who perceives a spanking to be hate rather than love maybe as we read these stories we see Jesus' compassion and we don't see it as very compassionate and maybe that's our fault not his sometimes it takes us a while to grasp what love is sometimes when a brother or sister speaks the truth to us it stings in the moment it doesn't feel very loving. It doesn't feel very kind. It doesn't feel very compassionate. And then maybe two or three years later, hopefully shorter if our pride is diminished, but you know, six months, three months, five years later, we can look back and say, man, when that brother or sister said that to me, that must have been really hard for them. And in fact, they were actually being really loving and really kind to me. It was my own sin that blinded me from being able to see it. Love is hard for us to grasp. Well, I think one of the best ways that we can see the love of Jesus in this story is by seeing the way that he provides for his sheep. As soon as the shepherd encounters the sheep, he begins to feed them. In verse 34, let's go back and read that again. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Now, the first thing that Jesus does when he sees the sheep who don't have shepherds is he goes to teach them. He goes to feed them, but he feeds them spiritually. And here again, we see that Jesus' primary ministry is spiritual, not physical. We've said this time and time again, right from this pulpit. But Jesus cares more about our eternal affairs than our physical condition. Jesus cares more about spiritual ministry than physical ministry. The idea that Jesus always met physical needs before he met spiritual needs is simply not true, and it cannot be found in the pages of Scripture. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons why we might not see the love of Christ so easily in this story is because it seems like Jesus is entirely unconcerned with people's physical needs. The disciples notice it. Jesus is teaching, 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 teaching. And finally the disciples had to stop and they go, whoa there. These people need something to eat. Of course Jesus cares about our physical needs too. He does. He cares about our physical needs too. But what's obvious from this text and so many other texts is that our physical needs, now listen, I'm not overstating my case. Our physical needs are always secondary to our spiritual needs. Our physical needs are always secondary to our spiritual needs. 
Well, Sean, what you're saying is physical needs don't matter. No, they do matter. But they are always secondary to our spiritual needs in the mind of God. Jesus once sat with Peter after he had denied him, and he asked him three different times, do you love me? And every time, Peter responded by saying, yes, I love you. And after Peter responded, each time uh, Jesus responded to him by saying, well, then feed my sheep. Do you think that Jesus was talking about physical food there or spiritual food? It's true. Our physical can affect our spiritual. A hospital is one of the most spiritually depressing places in the world. But addressing our physical needs alone will never satiate our spiritual hunger. Friends, you should know that having full stomachs is not Jesus' main priority for your life. It's not his greatest concern for us. In many scenarios, Jesus would be more than content to see us walk away with empty stomachs, but full hearts. As a matter of fact, more often than not, our hearts are fullest with the things of God when our stomachs are emptiest. Brothers and sisters, this truth that Jesus cares more about our spiritual provision than our physical provision is one of the theological truths that guides the way that we do ministry in the life of this church. The preaching of the gospel and the teaching of the gospel takes priority in the life of this church. And hopefully, the way that we use our time, talent, and treasure will reflect that. We will certainly do good to all men, but especially to the church. And we will certainly do good to all men in the church, but primarily spiritually and then physically. We read in verses 53 through 56 earlier, we're not going to spend a lot of time there, but in verses 53 through 56 we saw that wherever Jesus went, people ran to him and he responded to them. He healed them physically. He did care about their physical needs. When the disciples brought the hunger of the people to his attention, he did feed them. And when the disciples were struggling for hours and hours on end against the wind on the Sea of Galilee, eventually he did go to them and alleviate their physical suffering. But none of these things were primary in the mind of Jesus. They're all secondary. God allowed the people to develop the hunger. Jesus could have planned to make food provisions for these people. He allowed them to go into a place where they might risk being hungry. In one sense, God even allows the sicknesses of all those who come to Jesus for healing. Jesus allowed the disciples to struggle and suffer in the boat for hours and hours on end. Which leads to the question, if Jesus is so loving, why does he allow any of this to happen in the first place? Why doesn't he just stop it? Why doesn't he prevent it? It's almost as if Jesus, in his compassion wants to teach his disciples, which includes you and includes me, something that we, they, wouldn't learn otherwise had he not allowed them to go through it. Had he not allowed us to go through it. And that's another way that Jesus is loving. When he allows us to go through struggles, through suffering, he's showing us our inadequacy and our need of him. And that's the next way that we see Jesus as a loving shepherd. He shows us our inadequacy and our great need for him. 
I've got a theory. I can't prove it. But I feel like this whole walking on the water situation was staged. I feel like it was a setup. In verse 37, Jesus sends his disciples out on the water. That way he could give them the opportunity to teach them about their own inadequacy. I think I have a few good reasons to believe that. I think there are two reasons from this story that lead me to believe that. The first is from verse 52. In verse 52, Mark says, For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hard. In saying this, Mark connects Jesus' walking on the water with his healing of the 5,000. It seems to me, anyways, that Jesus wanted to show his disciples yet again his true identity as well as their own inadequacy. Jesus tried to teach them about their own inadequacy with the feeding of the 5,000, but they didn't get the point. It says that their hearts were hard. They didn't understand. So Jesus is like, all right, you don't get it the first time. I'm going to send you out on this lake and struggle against the wind for hours on end. Maybe you'll get it that time. The disciples rode and rode and rode against the wind, but they couldn't make any headway. It wasn't until Jesus showed up that the winds died away and they could move forward. Twelve men, with all their strength, all their might, made no progress whatsoever. They couldn't fight the wind. They couldn't get to shore. They needed Jesus to be their strength. The second part of the story that makes me think that this whole walking on water miracle was kind of a staged, teachable moment is that the disciples... They come back from their first mission as this whole thing begins. So if you still have your Bibles open, go back to verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. If you've been with us for the book of Mark, you've seen that one of the common themes is that the disciples mess up in a big way over and over and over again. Their hearts are often hard. They don't understand what Jesus is saying or doing unless Jesus pulls them off in the corner and says, all right, let me explain to you what that parable meant. Let me explain to you the reason why I'm doing this, why I'm doing that. They're often brash, sarcastic. They don't understand the mission. Jesus personally rebukes Peter, referring to him as Satan. And they come back from their first mission and they tell Jesus about everything that they said and did. They're so excited. They're so pumped up. Hey, mission accomplished. Like George Bush standing on the airplane carrier. Mission accomplished. We won, guys. And then almost immediately after that, they balk at the idea of feeding the 5,000. They just went and said and did many mighty things in the name and under the authority of Jesus Christ. And now they see a need that needs to be met. And they say, hey, Jesus, we need to get this taken care of. And Jesus says, okay, take care of it. And they go, we can't do that. We shouldn't be too hard on the disciples. They were right when they said that it would take about 200 denarii to feed about 5,000 people. A denarii is one day's uh, wage. So you work a full day, full 10-hour day, you get one denarii. So they were saying, you basically need to work 200 full days, uh, full days labor in order to get enough money to feed this many people one single meal. But their problem wasn't in the fact that they calculated the cost of feeding people. 
It was in the fact that they had failed to trust Jesus' command in this situation and the way that they responded. Rather than responding and saying, okay, Master, you want us to feed them? All right, we will. We trust you. We just got back from a mission where we would said and did many mighty things in your name and under your authority. And uh, yeah, we trust you. But these are a lot of people. We don't really have any money. We're in a desolate place. It'll take people a long time to get to town. Uh, what do you think we should do here? That kind of response would communicate trust and dependence and Christ's sufficiency even if it were laden with trace amounts of reasonable doubt. Instead, the disciples respond with what sounds like typical sarcasm. Are you out of your mind? That's impossible. And they're right. It was impossible. If you take Jesus Christ out of the equation, it is an impossible thing that Jesus is asking them. And they feel totally inadequate to feed 5,000 people with a little bit of bread and a few scraps of fish bones. It's as if Jesus is commanding them to do the impossible to communicate something to them. Namely, their total inadequacy. It's as if they've come back from their mission totally hyped up. Totally hyped up off of their own juice. Everything that they did. And Jesus is trying to remind them that they in themselves didn't really do anything at all. Ah, you did many amazing things. Yeah, great, you know, like an... Ex you know, tell me more, buddy. Come on, keep telling me. But just so you know, it wasn't you who did it. It was me. I did it through you, and don't ever forget that. Did you really heal a sick person? Well, here's 5,000 people who need to be fed. Have at it if you can do it in your own power and authority. But rather than take the hint and learn the lesson in humility, the disciples respond abruptly, harshly, perhaps even sarcastically. It seems as if both Jesus is calling on the disciples to feed the 5,000 and Jesus allowing the disciples to fight the wind for hours were Jesus' way of showing the disciples their own inadequacy. Both situations were hopeless until Jesus got involved. Then the impossible became impossible. Can you think of any scenario like that in your life? In the life of your friends and family? Maybe you have a brother or sister who is far off the beaten path. And you think, it's, it's just never going to happen. They're never going to come to Christ. Maybe you've been witnessing to a co-worker for years and years and years on end, and you feel like it's never going to happen. Maybe you're experiencing issues in your marriage, and you feel like we're never going to get past this. I've tried everything that I can do to fix this, to kind of bring the person around to help them see. Well, maybe you're right. Maybe it is impossible. But maybe you should stop relying on your own strength. Maybe you should start seeing yourself as totally inadequate and start leaning on Jesus more. You still do your part, but do it in a way that shows that you clearly are leaning on Jesus and trusting in Jesus. That's how I feel day in and day out as a pastor of this church. By God's grace, I see a lot of evidence of grace and a lot of growth. We've seen numerical growth, we've seen spiritual growth, and I'm thankful for that. But some days, I fight this thing in my own strength. I feel like I take the weight of this entire church on my back. And I, 
I very much feel like the disciples rowing against the wind. And any time I feel like we make a little progress, something happens and I feel blown back to where I was before. And maybe I should start trusting in Jesus more. I don't think this church is an impossible situation. But to see this church continue to grow and to thrive and to prosper in the gospel is certainly a difficult one. And it's one that I cannot do by myself. It's one that me and the elders cannot do by ourselves. It's one that we as a congregation cannot do by ourselves. We need Jesus to be our strength. And I'd prefer it if we learn that lesson now rather than waiting until he humbles us. Ephesians 2, chapter 10 says this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see that? Even the good works that we are called to do as Christians, that we're empowered to do as Christians by the power of the Holy Spirit, those works were prepared before the world ever began. You as a mom or dad or student or husband or wife or employee or pastor or us as a church, we are not capable of doing what we should do, what we ought to do, what God has planned for us to do in our own power. And the good news of the gospel is that we don't have to do it in our own power. We should not debate the sovereignty of God as if it were some intellectual toy. The sovereignty of God tells us that the good works that we have to do on this earth were given to us. They were prepared by God beforehand, before the worlds ever began. Before he said, let there be light, he already knew that Blaine was going to evangelize his friend and that Chance was going to share the gospel with a co-worker. And then Christ the Son came and he purchased those good works on our behalf. He paid for our sins and he made it possible for us to do good works. And then he gave us the spirit which regenerated our dead hearts. And now he lives in us and he empowers us to carry out the good works that the Father prepared before the foundations of the world for us. We've talked about salvation before and we've said that God the Father elects, predestines, and adopts. And then the Son comes and he redeems. And then the Spirit regenerates and sanctifies and seals into the day of redemption. All that is true for salvation. But it's also true for our good works. God gave us good works. The Son came and purchased our ability to accomplish those good works. And the Holy Spirit now empowers us to do those good works. I hope you see that God is the main actor, the main character in what He's calling us to do, even if He's still calling us to do it. The best way to avoid being humbled is to stay humble. Jesus will not allow us to walk in our own strength. And it's very kind of him to not allow us to trust in our own abilities. He's kind enough to allow us to fall on our faces so that as we lie flat on the ground looking silly and sheepish, we would roll over and look up and seek him. He allows us to come to grips with our own inadequacies so that we would learn to trust in him and his total ability. Jesus is a compassionate shepherd who shows us our weaknesses and then gives us his strength. Another way that Jesus loves his sheep 
is by putting their needs before his own. By putting their needs before his own. Up to this point in the book of Mark, we've seen that everywhere that Jesus goes, a crowd begins to form. They're desperate for his time and attention, and they surround him. And we see that more often than not, Jesus is kind enough to take care of them, to do what they're asking him to do. Now, at various times and for various reasons, Jesus has to cut those good deeds short. He has to stop healing, stop casting out demons. And one of the reasons that he often cites is that he has to continue to go and preach the gospel. But forgetting the crowds for a second, Jesus is even quick to put the needs of the disciples before his own. As soon as they come in from their labors, Jesus looks at them and says, you need to take time. You need to rest. You need to recover. Because you've just gone through some really hard things. Look at verse 31. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. Now, unfortunately, the disciples, they didn't actually get that rest that Jesus was trying to give them. And I'm sure you know what that's like. You have that planned off day. You have that planned vacation. You have that time that you were going to take just for yourself. But then a family member calls and they need help fixing their car. Or a church member calls and they just had a fight with their wife. Whatever it may be, work calls all too often. And that's what we see here with the disciples. It says that as they were crossing the sea, people ran around from all the different villages and they met them where they got to. So basically, their only rest was while they were in the boat. And again, rest in a boat is not much rest at all. And then again, after Jesus finishes teaching the people, it says here in the text, until the hour grew late, we see that Jesus releases the disciples to go back to Bethsaida while he dismisses the crowd. And if you've ever tried to get people to leave your house when they don't want to, you know how hard it is to dismiss a crowd. So Jesus is still cognizant of the disciples and their need for rest. So after they've, he's taught all day, and after they've fed the 5,000, he sends the disciples back away so that they can rest. And he stays behind to finish up the work of sending the crowd away. And then not only that, but afterwards, in verse 46, we see that Jesus goes into another kind of work after he dismisses the crowd. It says that he went up on the mountain to pray. Look at verse 46. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Jesus understands the principle that spiritual takes precedence over the physical. Rather than taking a moment to sleep, grab a quick wink, a quick power nap, rather than taking time to eat a couple of figs and some bread and some fish, Jesus goes and does the work of prayer. He doesn't just relax. He doesn't just enjoy the view. He retires to partake of the spiritual rest that he finds in his Father, through the work of prayer. And this part of the story was particularly convicting to me. How often after a long, hard day of ministry do I just come home, grab my Ben and Jerry's, turn on my Netflix, and just veg out? 
I tell myself, it's okay, you deserve this. You worked 15 hours today. You didn't take a day off in the last two weeks. Which is really just another way of saying, it's okay, you don't have to pray. You don't have to spend extra time being restored by your Father. You enjoy these sweets and these Netflix. For fathers, many of us are out working and we work hard to bring home food and to provide for the family. And when we get home, our immediate tendency is to just sit down and to veg out, to turn on the TV or to open the computer. And we say, just give me five minutes, just give me ten minutes. I say this because I know it, I've done it. And we just turn off when we get home. And we tell ourselves things like, it's okay, we deserve this. We've had a long, hard day. We don't think about our family, our wives who have been at home taking care of the children all day without us. We don't think about the fact that, they've, that we're their friends and that they've been thinking about things that they want to talk to us about all day while we've been away. We don't think about the stresses that they've endured at home with the kids and taking care of the house. We play this little game of who has the harder job, me or you. And so we come home and we just blank out rather than saying, you know what? I'm going to rest by working. I'm going to rest by serving my family. By taking five or ten minutes and saying, how did your day go, Amber? You know, tell me what's going on with the kids. How is patience in school? Is there anything I need to know about? Hey, I know that you had this thing going on when I left this morning, and it's been like eight or nine hours, and we haven't had a chance to talk. Let's take five minutes and talk. Now, I'm not saying that there's no place for Ben and Jerry's and Netflix. Praise God there is. And I think there will be in the new heavens and new earth. I'm confident. But I do wonder why when I'm exhausted from the labors, the good labors that God has given me, I rarely seek rest in my Father. And I immediately and almost viscerally seek rest in the things of this world. Maybe you would do well to ask yourself that same question. When I was in the army, we had a sergeant who, whenever we would go to the field, he was always up before the entire platoon. And when we would get done working for the day and we would go down for the night, he would always be up after us. And when we would go and have chow, he would always wait until all the other soldiers were fed before he would eat. Now, if I can imitate Paul and mix my metaphors here for a second, I think that this army sergeant is the perfect illustration of what it looks like to be a shepherd. You're just constantly putting the needs of others before your own. I hope you see such truths lived out by the men who are the under-shepherds of this church. I pray that you see them putting this church first in their lives. God, family, this local church, in that order. Young men, if you desire to be an elder in the life of this church, you should know that one of the things that I look for in a man is whether or not he's looking out for his own interests first or the needs of the body. That goes for supporting the church financially, taking time to meet with members for discipleship, prioritizing Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings, and even the way that you participate in Sunday school and Wednesday night Bible study. Good parents put the needs of their children before their own. Good sergeants put the needs of their soldiers before their own. Good pastors put the needs of the church before their own. Good shepherds put the needs of the sheep before their own. 
And faithful Christians put the needs of the kingdom before their own. And finally, brothers and sisters, the way that the Lord shows himself to be loving is that he reveals himself as the true shepherd. He reveals himself as the true shepherd. Ultimately, both of these accounts are accounts of Jesus continuing to reveal himself to his people and especially to his disciples. Jesus didn't walk on the water because it was like a really cool party trick. Jesus did the things that he did to show the disciples their own inadequacy and to show them his true identity. Job 9-8 through 8 says that God tramples upon the waters. Isaiah 43 says that the Lord makes his way through the waters. In walking on the water, Jesus is showing the disciples that he is very God of very God. Once again, he's doing things that only God can do. The point of feeding the 5,000 is not the miracle, but the miracle worker. That's one of the reasons why I haven't said anything about the bread or the fish this morning or the fact that they picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. I think there's probably good things there that we could think about <coughs> and talk about, but I don't really think that that's the main point of what's happening here. It's not the bread and the fish. It's the God who breaks the bread and the fish and feeds 5,000 people with them. Think about the story of the Bible. You remember God leading his people through the wilderness? You remember that he fed them with manna and then with quail as he led them through the wilderness? Here in Mark 6, Jesus sees his sheep and he gives them meat and bread as they sit in a desolate place. See, God is still shepherding his people. Except for now in Mark 6, it's obvious that God is shepherding his, his people in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Whether you're in the book of Exodus or in the book of Mark, whether it's God the Father or God the Son, you see God shepherding his people. Earlier in our sermon, we talked about Moses the shepherd and the way that he was seeking another shepherd for his sheep after he passed. Well, Jesus is that shepherd. There wasn't another great shepherd after Joshua. You had David, but he was a sinner. Solomon, even more so. You had King Josiah who tried to reform the people. You probably had good priests along the way, but all of them were still fallen priests. They needed a true shepherd who would never abandon them, who would never leave them, who would never fail them. As a father, you might feel the weight of this. You know that you're a shepherd, but you know that you're inadequate as a shepherd. So you tell your children, I'm going to shepherd you as best as I can, but learn from my mistakes and do not imitate me in my sins. And that's the way it was with Israel, with every shepherd that they had, even the best amongst them. But when Jesus comes, there's no longer... <coughs> <clears throat> there's no longer a need for a disclaimer. It's not like, I am your shepherd, asterisk, look down for the fine print. I'm a sinner, so you can't imitate me perfectly. Now Jesus, the true and perfect, permanent shepherd, has arrived. Point. Stop. There doesn't need to be any clarifications. He is the true shepherd. He is the better shepherd. 
He feeds his sheep what they need eternally. He's kind and he's compassionate to his sheep. He puts their needs before his own needs, and he shows them their great need of a shepherd, and then meets their great need by the power of his might. In Ezekiel 34, we read of God's anger at the fake shepherds of Israel. But in verses 11 through 15, we saw that God promises that he himself will come and shepherd his people. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. Here they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be their shepherd. I will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. Hasn't he kept his promise? I think he has. In Jesus Christ, we have the shepherd that we were waiting for. And he's calling all men everywhere into his fold. Even today. His sheep hear his voice. They know his voice. And they come when he calls. If you're here this morning and you hear him calling you, if you hear his voice, enter into his gates. If you do, Psalm 23 tells you that you will never walk that he will make you lie down in green pastures forever. And he will lead you by the waters of eternal life, and he will restore your soul. Let's pray. Father, your promises are sweet. They're almost too good to be true. And we know that in our own strength, we cannot lay hold of them. But we thank you that you've given us the ability to trust and believe in your promises. So help us now as your sheep to hear your voice and to be obedient to your voice. Lead us at this church as your congregation, Father, for our good and for your glory. Amen.